0: teach me about the great lakes teach me about the great lakes Cha! welcome back to teach me about the great lakes an exactly twice monthly podcast in which i a great lakes novice ask people who are smarter and harder than working smarter and harder working than i am and sometimes more eloquent to teach me all about the great lakes i'm joined today by carolyn foley research coordinator at illinois indiana sea grant carolyn what's up
1: um, my cat is currently trying to attack my headphones, okay. so that's what's up right now.
0: Um, and so do you have like a, a long cord that is being clawed? Is that the deal?
1: Yeah, I keep one out so that I can hear my kids. There you go. And yep,
0: yep. <laughs> I keep them both on so I can't hear my kids. That's maybe a difference in our parenting <laughs> style. I, uh, <laughs> so everybody, you can look down to your show notes. Carolyn will send me a photo of the cat because, uh, the rule of recording is if there's a cat, you have to have a picture. And, uh, what is, what is the cat's name? Optimus Prime. Optimus Prime. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Named after uh, the the famous the famous um Transformer, I would imagine. In- Indeed. It's not just a coincidence. Okay. (laughs)
2: No.
0: (laughs) Uh, Good. Well, uh, speaking of famous things, we're going to be talking today again about uh, a famous invader that maybe Optimus Prime could talk about. We're going to talk today all about invasive species some more. It's a huge issue that we work with. And so we've got a a bunch of guests lined up. This is actually an action, like an episode of Transformers, this is an action pack. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Uh, So maybe we should just uh, jump right in if that's cool with you. Sure. All right. Great. Uh, transitional music. Oh, since this is invasive related, we have this special inside joke, transitional music. Here we go. It's a song called Crawdad Hole. It's like an old fashioned. Anyway, we'll shut it up. I apologize to our, our listeners and our guests. Um, great. Our guests today were joined by two people right now. First is an old friend of the show, Dr. Brian Roth, an associate professor at the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife at Michigan State University. Brian, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, I'm feeling good. We're rolling. It's 930 in the morning. The coffee's kicking in. It's good. Uh, And uh, we're also joined by Illinois, Indiana Sea Grant's own Greg Hitsaroth. He's our aquatic invasive species outreach specialist. Greg, what's up with you, man? Not me, but here I am. Yeah, Greg. (laughs) 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 Poor devil is on central time. So it's an hour earlier for him uh but that's okay we're here to talk about uh invasives generally but really we want to focus in on the crayfish issue because uh, it's near and dear to my heart this time of year because we're getting into crawfish season back in my hometown of louisiana and i keep checking the vaccine database or whatever every day so i can try to go home and have some but uh no vaccine yet so no crawfish for me uh brian you've done a lot of crawfish research right or cray hang on crayfish research how'd you get started in that field exactly
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. And, yeah, I I appreciate the crawfish, crayfish, crawdad, mudbud name game there. I I used to live in Louisiana, and I always used to have to correct my friends and call them crayfish, and they would just call me a Yankee instead. Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've always had a curiosity about crayfish. Um, I grew up in Seattle and walking along the creeks, we would see them. And then as I grew older, I started snorkeling for them and I knew that they're edible. And so I would take them home, boil them up and eat them. They're delicious. And then that really got me thinking about, you know, what are these things doing? Like, why is there so many of them in some places and none in others? And that really started me down... The road towards my research focus
1: so do you have a a favorite crayfish species that you study or eat either one
3: (laughs) well to eat you know frankly like i said when i lived in louisiana we ate a lot of red swamp crayfish and they were delicious and easy to peel um and so certainly in terms of consumption the red swamp is up there it's it's delicious and easy to eat um In terms of ecologically speaking, one of my favorites actually is the virile crayfish, which is a native species to the region of the Midwest. And it's one of those, it's a real survivor in that even in the face of rusty crayfish invasions, in a lot of cases, it just seems to kind of hang on and hang on and hang on and and stay around, even though, you know, all
0: the dominoes are stacked against it. So I heard you say is that the virile crayfish? That's correct. I, I have to ask. Why why is it called the virile crayfish? Is it got a high fecundity as we like to say, or is it um, just called that for some other reason? Because I think virile That's really, you know what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah.
3: It's it's interesting and, and not Particularly, it's kind of uncooked, to be honest (laughs) with you. Uh, Crayfish have reproductive parts that are not so unsimilar from humans, uh, except they have two and not one uh, in terms of the males. And the VRALs are are substantial. I'll just say that. (laughs) (laughs) That is not
0: the reason why they're my favorite, by the (laughs) way. It's actually my favorite one too. I'd never heard of it till just now, but uh, <laughs> um, all right,
1: great. So, what are some what are some things about um, like are crayfish actually better invaders than other species, or like than fish or something like that? And what are some of the features that make them good invaders?
3: Yeah, crayfish are, are nasty. That that is for sure in terms of their potential as invaders. I wouldn't necessarily say they're better or worse than fish because there are certainly some fish that are are unbelievable good invaders. Think um, common carp, which are worldwide Um, goldfish, are really good invaders, believe it or not. Um, And then beyond that, humans are really good at transporting species around the globe. So one species that you might not think of as an invader per se, but is a really good, uh, well, it's a species that has been distributed widely is something like rainbow trout, Mm. right? So rainbow trout have a very small native home range, basically the west slope of the Rockies and Cascades, but they've been introduced to well over 100 countries. So it really depends on the species that you're talking about. But in terms of crayfish, um, certain species in particular are really good invaders. And the red swamp crayfish is certainly near the top of that list. There are a number of species that have been introduced both within the United States and North America as well as to other shores, including into Europe. And and they're good. And one of the things that makes them such good invaders is that they're oftentimes really tolerant of of conditions, uh, of varying conditions, I should say. So um, the red swamp, for instance, uh, you know, whatever water body that they had been surviving, in can dry out completely for months at a time. And they're fine. Huh. They survive. They reproduce. They, in fact, don't mind it when their ponds dry up.
0: So what do uh, they do? Is that when they is that when they hunker down like in the little uh, burrows and burrows, and they put yep. like mud, so there's like little mud piles on top, right?
3: Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. So that is something that we're finding that's different here in Michigan, where they've invaded, oftentimes as compared to what they do in their native home range, and it, it probably has to do. Uh, with the soil characteristics. So there's a lot of clay in their native home range, and so they build these chimneys. Right? And so if you drive down any road in Louisiana where there's any kind of ditch, you'll see these chimneys everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Um, whereas here in Michigan, they occasionally make chimneys, but oftentimes it's just a hole. <laughs> and and that's the sign. So you have to look very closely and and be able to differentiate between what's a crayfish hole and what's like a chipmunk
0: hole greg how did uh how did illinois united sea Grant, how did we get involved in crayfish like uh i mean so it's a big issue in our so we cover the two-state region in addition to the great lakes broadly right and and so our invasive crayfish like a big deal for us too how did we get started with that
4: um, yeah, so a lot of my work is focused around organisms and trade, so um, organisms that get bought and sold. Um, and through my work, I, I visited plenty of aquarium shops and nurseries or garden centers. Yeah. And I kept coming across crayfish um, being sold as crayfish, like no species designation. And knowing that there are some known invasive species of crayfish out there, it was a little disconcerting uh, what was being sold. And so, um, from my perspective, I was more interested in what was actually being sold um, or traded in Crayfish. Um, but also, I did a lot of trade shows, like aquarium shows and garden shows. Um, and we have a couple uh, specimens mounted in acrylic blocks. Um, and, like, sometimes I'm not the most approachable person. Uh, but Crayfish would definitely bring people to our tables. Um, I would see people walk... Six tables past us, Mickey, turn and come back and talk about crayfish. Oh, really? And so it became a large talking point for me at these trade shows. um, But also seeing these issues um, in trade, um, and trade is one of the pathways of introduction of invasive crayfish, um... But also uh, hearing stories from groups like Brian's um, and Seth Herbst in Michigan, uh, Ruben Keller in Illinois, and um, Tim Campbell in Wisconsin DNR, um, talking about new populations of red swamp crayfish popping up, um, it seemed like a, like an interesting topic to be involved in, and um, in the outreach perspective.
0: Yeah, and so so. I guess there's a question. So people are tra- like selling them for aqua- – so people put crayfish in their aquariums like for decoration or pets or whatever? I don't even know. Like our yep. aquarium has one fish kind of swimming around – Um and it uh, isn't doing much. So we know that they were probably introduced that way, you know, people releasing them. And I think Brian talked last time he was on about, uh, you know, how there are some let go through uh, crawfish boils or whatever. Hmm. Uh, what's the big deal? Like, why do we care about this generally? Like invasive species are bad, I agree, but it, what, what is the effect when, when uh, either uh, rusty or, or swamp crayfish get um, introduced? Like, what are the effects of that in the area?
3: Yeah, so with red swamp crayfish, we're still trying to figure that out, okay. to be honest with you. Um, they're a new invader into Michigan uh, as late as 2017. That's when we first figured out where they are. And, and to, to be quite frank, we're not exactly sure. Huh. That's because they are so new, and many of the systems in which they've invaded were not particularly well studied before they got in. That's oftentimes one mechanism to be able to determine their impact is you look before they got in and then you look after. Well, if there's no before, then how do you know what happened afterwards, right? With other invasive crayfish species, we have much better information. And even with red swamp crayfish in other locations, say in Europe. And we know that they can have some pretty dramatic ecosystem effects as opposed to native crayfish species. And that includes things like um, aquatic plant destruction, uh, reducing and changing the community of benthic insects and other uh, aquatic invertebrates. They can also affect water quality. So one of the things that they do, either through clipping macrophytes or just through their normal feeding activities, is increase the suspension of of essentially muck. Mm. Right? and so they can change the quality of water they can resuspend nutrients into the water column which could make them greener and that is one thing that we're looking out for one of the things that we know and what we've seen with our eyes uh, in Michigan is their impacts on bank structure so those burrows that we talked about um you know, they actually are burrowing down to the waterline. And if there's a fairly high density of crayfish in a particular area, they can essentially turn that bank into Swiss cheese. Mm. And because of that, you you might imagine that a storm or intense wave action or even just the heavy rainfall can increase erosion. And we know that that is occurring in, in some of our ponds already. Um, we just have to measure it. And that's been established in, in many other locations to the point where you could have failures of uh, pretty substantial water control structures. Like there's documentation of entire wetlands being drained by red swamp crayfish burrows um, and other things like earthen dams uh, being damaged beyond any sort of reasonable utility um, by, by their burrowing. And so those are primarily the impacts that we're looking for when when, when we're studying red swamp crayfish. Um, another primary impact is their effect on native crayfish species. And time after time after time, what we see when really any invasive crayfish, almost any invasive crayfish species invades, is that the native species just go away. Hmm. Um, and that is something that can occur really dramatically, such as in Europe, when North American crayfishes were introduced there, those North American crayfishes carried a disease called crayfish plague, and it essentially nearly wiped out some of the native species in Europe. Here in America uh, and North America in general, they're all, that disease is is, uh, endemic. And so it doesn't have as big of an impact but oftentimes these invasive crayfishes are larger or more aggressive and or more fecund and so there's other mechanisms such as fish preying more heavily on the native species than the non-native species that leads to the replacement of of native crayfish species Hmm. by the invasive
1: so would that be basically because the native species are like easier to catch or easier to eat or something like that? Yeah.
3: Yeah. Usually. Yeah. So it's either behavioral. So um, the non-native species, and and this is really well studied for rusty crayfish in particular, uh, where rusty crayfish are more aggressive and can literally yank the native species out of their hiding holes. Um, or it's, it's, physiological. So crayfish, or or sorry, um, more morphological. So um, crayfish, almost all of their battles are handled in terms of who has the bigger claws. And so if you have bigger claws, the likelihood is you're going to win. And a lot of these non-native species happen to have bigger claws relative to their body size than the native species.
0: Yeah, like in in Louisiana, when you get the biggest ones, you can you actually eat the claw meat sometimes. Like it's 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 you know like like five per boil uh, are are that big. But, <laughs> but those are the ones. Yeah, man. those
3: are the. Ones. That's my favorite part. The claws have the sweetest meat for sure. <laughs>
0: You're a title machine. <laughs> Um uh <laughs> so so uh so are these so you talk about them in ponds a lot and maybe on banks and stuff like that. These aren't in the lake though in Lake Michigan, are they? Are they a concern for Lake Michigan?
3: Yes. Yes, very much so. Um yeah, the, it's something that I think still needs to be worked out. So Lake Michigan proper, particularly for uh red swamp crayfish, so the lake proper is is probably not their ideal habitat. Mm-hmm. However, um, for rusty crayfish in particular, they've invaded everywhere in Lake Michigan, um, all the way from the south, all the way uh, pretty much up as far north as you can go. Um, with Red Swamp, we're really concerned about the surrounding wetlands and, and inland water bodies, river, rivers that lead into the lakes. That is where we're most concerned. In fact, they already are established in the Lake Michigan basin um a scientist by the name of reuben keller who's at loyola chicago um he has done extensive work in the canals around chicago on red swamp crayfish invasions there
0: and we'll put a link to some of the work that Ruben's done uh and some of the work you've done in our show notes which you can find at teach slash uh 27 because this is episode 27 so greg uh so this is a regional problem that has a lot of different potential pathways of introduction, like we talked about, from the, the crawfish boils to the organisms in trade to who knows even what else. It seems to me like a collaborative approach is the way to go. And that's kind of the idea, right, behind the Invasive Crayfish Collaborative. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what that is and how it was formed?
4: Uh, yeah. So in Great Lakes Invasive Crayfish Collaborative was, again, born out of those observations about um, Uh, different introductions happening around the Great Lakes. Um, There's some concern about additional species being introduced. Uh, Illinois lists uh, Carrick's destructor, also known as the Yabby, as a potential invasive species, which is a crayfish from Australia. Um, There is a concern about a species um, called marbled crayfish, which is self-cloning or parthenogenic. Um, so there's a variety of species of crayfish of concern. Um, red song crayfish is a huge concern in the region, but we also wanted to think about, like, all the different species that are in trade, um, all the different pathways of introduction of different species, but also um, not being a crayfish expert. My background is in botany, actually. Um and so trying to uh, rely on expertise like Brian or Ruben Keller or Eric Larson at the University of Illinois or Chris Taylor with the Illinois Natural History Survey, trying to leverage all these other people who do have expertise in crayfish to be able to help address these issues across the Great Lakes um, and use an outreach perspective. Um, so really what we wanted to do was bring together a whole bunch of people to talk about crayfish and share information. So essentially, we established a a set of meetings associated with um, other meetings so we can get experts to these meetings. So the Great Lakes Panel on aquatic News and Species, we usually try to tack on our meetings around those meetings when, you know, people actually saw each other in person. And we hosted webinars. Um, We have a website. We have a Gmail group and a monthly newsletter and so we essentially just tried to create a means of sharing information among experts and people interested in crayfish in the Great Lakes. Um, so everyone down from graduate students up to professors and everyone in between, such as land managers, outreach professionals, et cetera. So pretty much it was just an excuse to go talk about crayfish in a large group.
0: Yeah. So. and and so it's really a serving that coordination type role in communication is that kind of where you uh, I guess you planted yourself as a botanist um, <laughs> <laughs> but <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> but 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 I think that's a really valuable ro- role right so what are some of the things that have happened as a result of the the ICC
4: um, yeah so as a result I think we've created a lot of good means of communication um, We've created some good conversations. We did a needs assessment of our stakeholders. So pretty much what we did is we asked a bunch of questions from ICC members or invasive crayfish collaborative members about what they saw as their need to understand crayfish and crayfish management or crayfish research in the region. Um, So we partnered with Craig uh, Miller at the Illinois Natural History Survey to do a survey um, of our stakeholders. And pretty much we asked people open-ed questions about what did they feel they uh, were lacking um, in these topics, uh, including outreach. And then we asked them to rank those. And so we essentially created a, a priorities list yeah. for the region um, based on expert opinion.
0: All right. So let's um, hear it. What are, what are, give me the top two or three priorities, I guess, just so, uh, so that the, the influential listeners to this show can uh, help to make those happen.
4: I think a uh, better understanding of impacts in the biology of some of the crayfish people found to be important. And mm-hmm. also understanding um, the management methodology, I think, better and more broadly perspective. I Ask like a bunch of scientists that. what
0: they need. And the answer is more science. I agree in the same way, but it shows what a dearther is, right? It's like to know something, like even to know the basics just takes a a uh, crayfish load of work, right? And yeah. and uh, it's easy to say oh, we should do this, we should do that, or whatever. But it's just that it works.
4: What was interesting, though, in part, was that some of the things that people identified as needs, other um, experts like Eric Larson and Ruben Keller, did approach us and say that a lot of this information does exist, and so that essentially pointed out another need of just more communication yeah. of crayfish issues.
1: So this is a question for, for both of you, but um, do you think there's hope in the fight against invasive crayfish, or are we just trying to minimize damage? Like, you are you know, you're talking about the ones that are here, you're talking about the ones that are on the horizon. Who knows how big these crayfish are going to get, and they're just going to keep fighting. The aisle's quite so. big,
0: but uh, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, so question for both of you. Do you think there, like, there's hope, or are you just trying to minimize the damage that occurs?
3: yeah so this is brian and um i think it's a mosaic Uh, there's no simple one answer i think in certain situations control and even eradication of certain populations is feasible we're actually attempting an eradication of red swamp in a couple ponds this upcoming summer however in certain situations they've kind of gone beyond the control stage so a good example of that would be like rusty crayfish in in northern wisconsin right they're in so many lakes those lakes vary in size uh from small to bigger than you want to deal with and you can't just go in there and you know reset that lake right there's there's other management priorities that wouldn't allow that nourish nor should they, right? They shouldn't just, you have to do the kind of the cost benefit of starting over on a lake. Yeah. Um, and, and even still, the methodologies for control and eradication of, of crayfish are, are still being evaluated, right? So there, there's a number of different ways to try to do it. And, and there's no one single prescription that, that would work for, for every water body. And so it it is a mosaic. I think in certain situations, control or eradication is possible, but in many others, um, it's not. The most important thing, I think, in in all situations, we don't want new, more new invaders. So some of the species that Greg mentioned, such as the marble crayfish, uh, the white claw crayfish, the yabby, Those are ones that we don't want here. And so if if we can reduce or eliminate the potential for for new invaders, that would be beneficial relative to the situation we have now. Some of these species that are already here, uh, we may be stuck with. And that just depends on where they are and what kind of water body they're in and what kind of management priorities exist around those water bodies.
0: So then related to that I guess uh you know thinking about preventing new invasions do you have like a, and, and this could be other of you uh, maybe like a, a a top couple of tips uh to give we want top tips for listeners on um uh reducing crayfish invasions and if you want a drum roll first I've got that ready to go so we can do uh yeah we'll do that we'll do a drum roll and then um and then we'll have your top tip Greg all right so do you need a second to prepare a top tip
4: Oh, my gosh. Um, I think I have a good one. All right, here we go. Drum roll.
0: We paid a lot of money for this, so. That's
4: a nice one. I'm going to say release zero. Be a hero. (laughs)
0: Yes! That is the top tip of all. Uh, So tell us, what does that mean? Release zero and be a hero.
4: Essentially, we're trying to get people to think of alternatives to releasing organisms. So when we talk about people releasing, um, crayfish, like usually it's to dispose of them and what often people think as a, is a humane way of disposing of crayfish so that they no longer want or can care for, or, um, so pretty much we're asking people to find a new home or consider working with a vet or a professional to find a, uh, humane way of euthanizing, crayfish.
0: So if you have like a pet crayfish, don't dump it in the river
4: or the pond. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you hear crazy things like people wanting to control aquatic weeds on their golf courses and throwing crayfish in there to control them as biocontrol. Yeah. And like, I don't know about those people um (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: an audience i'm still looking into a little bit no it's an important Um, audience right but it's it's one that that you have to reach in different ways
4: yeah so you have to think about other ways of talking about we control with some people but um top tip is just don't release them there we go something else to do with them
0: all right brian do
3: do you have yeah so one of the things that we all oh yeah sorry Okay. (laughs)
0: Learn what crayfish... Oh, oh, sorry.
3: I'm
2: so incompetent.
0: (laughs) Uh, What is your top tip, Ryan, now that (laughs) we've wasted your time?
3: Yes. (laughs) So I'll stack on the graves and one of the things that you, you have to know is learn what crayfish you have. So most people are completely unaware of how many species of crayfish are out there and what species that they have in their aquarium or that they're buying from a store or whatever the case may be. Um, And and we've learned that by going into some of those pet shops, et cetera, that Greg mentioned, and the owners and managers of those pet shops, they don't know what species they have. Um, And so, and they don't know how to tell, quite frankly. Uh, So learning what crayfish you might have uh, in your possession is is really important. Yeah. And, and just as a side note, the most humane way to euthanize crayfish is simply to stick them in the freezer. In the freezer. That is the most humane way because essentially they just get cold and go to sleep.
2: <laughs> Excellent. And,
3: and, and then they turn soft. Yeah. And- <laughs> and then they-
0: crayfish crayfish sickles. There we go. Crayfish sickles. It's, uh, the- so
1: is there... Is there a resource um, for crayfish identification that, like, is there an online resource that we can add to the show notes if people want to try to up their identification game?
3: Yeah, there's several actually, um, and I can point you. In, in fact, there is a thread on the ICC about about crayfish identification, and there's uh, field guides uh, for Illinois. And field guides for Michigan. And I don't know if there's one for Wisconsin, but the species that are exist in kind of that quad state area from Minnesota, well, five states from Minnesota around the bend to, to Michigan are pretty similar. And so there's a lot of overlap.
4: There's a great one from the Illinois National History Survey and Chris right. Taylor. It's a book. I think it costs about $10, but it's... It's very good. Lots of good photos, um, really good descriptions, and taxonomic keys. Yep, so.
3: and I can I can pass you one that uh, that Michigan produced
0: that's oh, nice. online. and Perfect. Free. Well, we'll put links to all those in the show notes cool. uh, as well. Again, teach me about the 27 uh you know this is really interesting uh, i'm talking about crayfish and it's actually kind of hopeful that we can help you know at least prevent future spreads but that's actually not why we had you on teach me about the great lakes this week the reason we had you on teach me about the red lakes is ask two questions and the first one is this uh and we have an answer from brian for this but maybe it's changed i'll be interested here uh greg if you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch which would you choose
4: I had some time to think about this, yeah. and my answer is actually a combination of both. It's the donut hamburger. The, the so you, instead of a bun, you use no, a donut. Horrible.
0: <laughs> oh, no. You tried to Kobayashi Meru this thing, it said good. it sounds horrible. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so have you ever actually had guess. one, or are you just uh, no. trolling us here?
4: I'm just trolling you. Oh. Um, <laughs> But I think in the, the nature of this, I would, I would try it. Yeah, I, I was going <laughs> to So the
0: next question is where to get one. So if I see one in Chicago, I'll try it. Right. No, I won't. I'm not going to try a donut hamburger. I'll be honest. Maybe a hamburger with a side of donut. But uh, <laughs> OK, well, the, uh, thanks for that, Greg. Um, Brian, I, I reviewed the tape. And last time you were here, you said a sandwich as long as it was corned beef with mustard from Chicago. Uh, do you want to revise that answer? Or are you sticking with it?
3: I'll revise, although that first choice is really hard to beat. Um, I have made some really good Philly steak, Philly cheesesteak sandwiches, um, over the coronavirus. (laughs) <laughs> pandemic being stuck at home and trying to gain like 50 pounds and that helps. All
0: right. So what's because... the... good. I'm glad you're able to achieve your goals. <laughs> what's the secret to a good homemade Philly, uh, cheesesteak sandwich? Uh, you really need
3: good meat. So the steak is critical. I actually prefer flank steak over ribeye. Um, and it just for me has more flavor oh. and is delicious. And then, you really have to get those vegetables just right, just right. Just a little bit of teeth in them and melt the, oh, melt the cheese in
0: it. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> 50, pounds, 50, 50 pounds. 50 pounds per sandwich. <laughs> yeah. I ate nachos the other – anyway, never mind. Uh, that's a different podcast. All right. Uh, so, Greg, you are uh, Illinois <laughs> Indiana Sea Grant's aquatic, outreach, uh, aquatic invasive species outreach specialist. What, what makes you good at that job? Like what are, what are key skills that somebody needs to have in your type of work, do you think? oh good lord um oh you act like i didn't send this to you in advance
4: yeah i know i've been thinking about it uh i don't know there's so many so many answers to this i think um i find being tall and intimidating the best yeah. uh, when working in person um so I really command authority so i think that's my
0: all right uh, that's quality thank you for that mental note on greg don't ask him questions good uh <laughs> So, Brian, you haven't answered this one because we changed up our second question for year two. But so what do you think makes a really good – I guess you're a a researcher and an associate professor and a fish ecologist. What are key skills you think that make somebody great at that job?
3: Uh, Stupidity? I don't know.
0: That's a little-known fact (laughs) about professors and researchers.
3: Being a glutton for punishment, I think, is is one of them. No, um, almost a pathological stubbornness. Quite frankly, I think is is really key to being a faculty member in just about any field. You have to really uh, learn from your mistakes, I should say. And, and you'll make a lot of them, and hopefully you'll come out the other side. Wonderful
0: uh great well where th- this has been a really fascinating discussion we can't thank you enough where can people go to learn either to follow you on social media learn more about your work etc um we can start with the icc greg where can people go if they're interested in that is there a public website or is it mainly just internal stuff
4: it is uh it's invasivecrayfish.org, um and you can see our invasive crayfish um Google group, uh, our SS feed on that website. Um, and you can always join through the website as well to become part of the collaborative.
0: And that's open to anybody? Regardless, just open interested. to anyone who's interested in crayfish. There you go. Great. And uh, Brian, so you have a great Twitter follow if you like pictures of fish. Um, and, uh, and crayfish. And crayfish. Really just pictures of aquatic things generally. Uh, where else can people go to find out more about what you do? Yeah, my website is Roth Lab MSU alloneword.com. .com. Wonderful. Well, uh, Brian Roth, a associate professor at Michigan State University, and Greg Hitzroth, who is uh, Illinois-Indiana Sea Grant's Aquatic Invasive Species Outreach Specialist, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I always love talking to Brian and that was uh, some interesting stuff on the crayfish and the great work that we're doing with the ICC as well.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody, I think who listens to this knows, or they're learning that I'm an invertebrate person. So anytime we can talk invertebrates is good.
2: Yeah. You're
1: but an
0: invertebrate yeah, it's really, um, lover. yes. I'm Glad I cut you off for that stupid joke. Um <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh yeah, so no, it's always nice to hear about inverts and I and, and, you know, they it's a it's a problem and, and and like a growing problem, but it's interesting to hear, you know, all the work we're doing with Transport Zero and things like that. I think that message is something we can't drive home enough. So you should go check out the be a hero uh stuff at transportzero.org where you can learn about the work that we're doing uh to fight the spread of aquatic and and terrestrial invaders in in the area.
1: Right. And so there's um there's a lot of different iterations of that type of message all across the Great Lakes Basin, right? On the Canadian side and the different States, like remove drain dry, don't move things around. So um, I think, you had a conversation with some people from Wisconsin Sea Grant, right, who are also trying to share a podcast and talk about the aquatic invasive species issue, which a lot of people think is like one of the number one issues facing the Great Lakes is the introduction of aquatic invasive species and how things completely change.
0: Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And so our colleagues over at Wisconsin Sea Grant, they have a podcast called Introduced. Um, and I was lucky enough to get to talk to the people at the Introduced podcast. And we'll go ahead and play that interview now. So next we're going to, so we we move from talking about the uh, Invasive Crayfish Collaborative and all the great work that they're doing and and, uh, having Brian back to talk with him about the work that he's doing. But we wanted to go more depth on on aquatic invasive species because it's such an important issue. And the timing of this is perfect because starting uh, very soon in March, our friends and colleagues over at Wisconsin Sea Grant are going to introduce, or nope what they're going to do is release the second season of their really great podcast, Introduced. Uh, If they were introducing, that'd be an Austin Powers situation, right? Allow myself to introduce themselves anyway regardless of that uh we'd like to bring on uh, a couple of people a handful of people from wisconsin sea grant we're going to talk with uh bonnie willison uh and sydney weidel uh who are the hosts and producers of the introduced podcast of wisconsin sea grant um we're also going to bring on my old friend tim campbell who's the aquatic invasive species outreach coordinator at wisconsin uh bonnie and sydney and tim how are y'all doing today
5: good thanks for having us
0: yeah, we're thrilled to have you. So, introduce. So, for those of you who don't know, first of all, let's get this out of the way right away. You should listen to introduce. It's a really great um, uh, episodic podcast uh, that you can find. We'll put a link in the show notes. But it, go to Wisconsin Sea Grant, and, and you'll see the you'll see it all over there. But it's a very different kind of show from Teach Me About the Great Lakes. It is, and I'm going to use some big words here, but it, it is professional and produced by people who aren't lazy so that kind of puts it in contrast to us Um, and it's all about aquatic invasive species they did season one they wrapped it up season two is about to come out and it's got a Wisconsin focus of course it does because they're Wisconsin Sea Grant but the story is much bigger than that and uh, you know each episode has it feels like 225 interviews with really smart people talking about fascinating stuff I, I just love it you should definitely go check it out but let's start with that. So, how did so introduce? How did the idea come about? Why did you want to do a podcast about AIS issues?
5: Yeah. So, um, I am the videographer for Wisconsin Sea Grant, and I got brought on telling saying that I would um, create videos and a podcast. Um, my supervisor Moira then came to me about maybe six months into my job and said, um, "I think here's a topic that would be good for." you do a podcast on aquatic invasive species. And so um, from there, we hired Sydney as well to be the co-host, co-producer. And then um, Tim definitely, as the aquatic invasive species outreach specialist, gives a lot of ideas, a lot of advice as a recurring guest. Um, So that's how it got started.
0: And so it's a really, like I said, a highly produced show. It combines field reporting, phone calls, interviews, uh, witty banter, um, and it, it's similar, like you might hear from NPR or one of these, you know, professional podcast things. But how much work is that? Like, how do you put together each episode? Do you decide on topics in advance, and maybe you can talk about some of the topics that you've uh, covered, or, or what is the process for putting together one of these really well done episodes?
5: So, um, introduced, I like to say that it's about. Wisconsin's changing waters or changing waters in general. It's about invasive species, but also humans, you know, human stories, because humans are the ones that are introducing these species and human, you know, humans all interpret these species differently. Um, So we... We didn't exactly know what form the podcast would take at first, but we decided to kind of do this, um, gather interviews, do research and everything, and put together multiple interviews into an episode. So we usually start off by researching, um, getting ideas from Sea Grant staff, researching um, what stories we could follow. And we gather interviews, talk to a lot of people um, over Zoom or take field trips even, we then will write the script and record and edit. So it's a lot of work that goes into each episode. Um, We calculated that in season one, we talked to 30 people. Season two, we talked to like 31 people. And each interview takes like a, about two hours. So it's, um, and then you have to sit down and review the the interview and cut it and everything. So it's, it's a lot. But um, it's fun. That's, that's a
0: whole lot. I, I guess it is fun. You spend more time in one season than I think we've spent on this whole deal. Um, so I have a question, though. Uh, you say how people or different humans, uh, different people interpret species differently. I don't. What do you mean by that? How how do people interpret species?
6: It's Sydney here. Um, thanks, Stuart. Oh, you're well, welcome.
0: And yeah, I, I should have said that in advance so we know who's who. Anyway, I'll figure that out. All right, <laughs> Sydney. So how do people interpret species?
6: Well, first of all, I just want to say we are big fans of teaching about the Great Lakes. Um, and then, to answer your question, what we've been learning more and more is we try to tell these stories and we talk to different people from different backgrounds who and different disciplines who all come at a topic or or a species, I guess, with like their own set of experiences, everyone is going to have a different relationship with that species. Like our own understandings of this has have changed so much since we started recording and doing all of this research. Like the whole way we define invasive species is if it's capable of causing economic or ecological harm. But like, Harm for some people is different than harm for other people. And some people have like long cultural histories with these species. Some people don't regard these as species at all. They think about them as beings. Um, So people, even in like the relatively small space of Wisconsin and all the watersheds that feed into the Great Lakes, there's so much diversity in the way that people perceive and talk about these things.
0: So, Tim, do you see that uh, a lot in, in your work? So you do a lot of work with the DNR, and so you, I assume, are really well versed in like the technical, legal definition of invasive species, but do you notice that diversity of experiences with them in the work that you do?
2: Yeah, and I guess what I really like about what uh, Bonnie and Sydney have done with the podcast is that I feel like a lot of times in my work as an AIS outreach specialist, I'm trying to think about how I can quickly get across some really scientific or technical information to people to try to help them make a better decision, but that's almost never the whole story, and a lot of these invasive species issues can be, you know, just complex, there's different sides, and I need You need more than five minutes to talk about it you need more than a thousand word article to talk about it there's a lot of different people a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different thoughts and feelings about those things and so what bonnie and cindy have done is been able to capture all those and put it together in a nice 45 minute to an hour episode so you can really immerse yourself in some of these issues and maybe you know see what i see or see what you know somebody else that does aquatic invasive species work uh you know i guess see and feel what they are when they're doing this kind of work
5: yeah, it's almost like um the phrase one person's trash is another person's treasure. That comes up I think a lot as a a theme of what we've kind of learned over the podcast is like one person's trash species is another person's like really important treasured species, like you know, Asian carp, the four species of invasive carp that we have here. Um they came they were introduced from China where they're a really culturally important species and um So the way we did a podcast episode, um, Asian carp episode, the the second one after we went to the the barriers for a field trip, um, where we talked to a scientist from China and got that story and just figured out how the, you know, there are ways that we talk about Asian carp where they're just like this horrible trash species and we throw them in dumpsters and stuff. But that's not the whole story, you know?
0: Yeah, that blew my mind when I moved here and was started looking to invasive crayfish, you know, but I moved here from Louisiana or that's where I was born and raised. You know, I spent the first uh, 22 years of my life or whatever in Louisiana. And, and and so when I found out that it was the same crawfish, I was like, oh, well, boy, that's a different story here, isn't it? Um, and, and so it's the exact same deal. So I think sometimes it's geography that makes a big difference. Sometimes it's uh, just what you're expecting out of a species. So I just finished listening to the really great, I think the eighth episode of season one was all about uh, invasive crayfish, the Red Swamp Crayfish in Wisconsin. Sydney, why don't you give us an overview of that? And I think, you know, I think it it has some interesting examples of what we're talking about.
6: How the the crayfish got into...
0: Yeah. Could you give us like an overview of, uh, you know, basically that episode and how the crayfish were introduced um, and what they did, you know, and we can talk about what they did about it and things like that, because I think it's an interesting story in and of itself.
6: Well, Stuart, you're touching on a huge mystery because we don't know how the crayfish got introduced. And that was one of the big things that really drew my attention and Bonnie's attention and like imagination for that story is that the crayfish are in there and someone out there knows how the crayfish got in. But despite like the tremendous amount of effort, and we can talk about that later, um, how hard people tried to figure out where the crayfish came from, they couldn't do it. And but someone out there... But they did. Well, I guess,
0: okay, so we don't know how they're introduced, but I just yeah. had this visual image in my head. So they got reported to the DNR because they were like crawling on people's lawns, right? Is that what was happening outside of a, a pond in a neighborhood?
6: Well, actually, we got in touch with... We went back and looked over some of the original reports that came into the DNR, and they had this phone number linked. And so I ended up calling this person and... I was really not expecting anything because this happened like a decade ago, and it was just this random phone number that I called, and this person picked up, and he yeah, he, he like walked me through the whole thing, how he'd gone to this pond um a lot growing up, I think I might be misquoting that actually, um. Let me think for well a you know people
0: can find out for themselves just go to introduce <laughs> and listen to episode eight but so so yeah, yeah. so they were in this pond They're and, in this um, pond so, and the
6: sun so, is fishing and doesn't catch any fish and instead starts setting nets and he ends up coming out with like a gigantic cooler full cooler full of crayfish and um and the guy is looking at this and he thinks this cannot be right I'm no biologist but I'm getting I'm getting vibes that something is terribly wrong with this system. And so he did the right thing and he called the DNR and the DNR sent someone out to investigate and they ID'd this crayfish. There was actually a crayfish identification expert at the Milwaukee Public Museum, which who knew that was a career path, but...
0: <laughs> um, well, there's only one, so the, the career path is filled. However, right, good.
6: <laughs> um, yeah, and they were able to I like, confirmed that this was a uh, red swamp crayfish, which was the first conf- the first um, instance of that happening in Wisconsin.
0: Yeah. And so then the DNR had a big plan. This is where it gets good. Because um, like, well, we need to get rid of these crayfish, right? And so uh, so help me track the story here. They wanted to use some sort of insecticide, even though they aren't actually insects, right? They wanted to use an insecticide, but they couldn't do that at first. Is that right, Bonnie? Yeah.
5: Um, so they were like, how do we... Get these crayfish out because the crayfish they can walk for miles, which is kind of unique. They burrow, they burrow into the ground, so they kind of um, can shield themselves off from anything that you try to do. So they tried to, u- they wanted to use an insecticide, but they couldn't get it in time. So they decide to use just bleach. Bleach. So, so that's something they tried. They fenced off the pond. They poured a lot of bleach in there, and um, it seemed like it would work, but then um they came back and so um yeah they the zombie
0: red swamp crayfish right you can bleach them and they won't you have to burn them uh no but anyway so they came back the next year right and (laughs) and it turns out why 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 did they come back What, what what did we miss
5: yeah um they think they came back because the crayfish were just burrowing down and um they had kind of a little layer that the chemicals couldn't reach, and so they were going to have to do a lot more to get them out. So um, they flew in a crayfish expert from Europe to help with that—the only person who has really like used this um, this insecticide on crayfish before. Um, and they they ended up using the insecticide, but they also just scraped the whole um, shores of this neighborhood pond in these people's backyards, like twenty feet out, and they constructed a whole new shoreline that crayfish wouldn't be able to burrow into. And um, they also, there was a different pond that was like really close by, and they actually just eradicated that pond. They <laughs> they filled it in. It's no longer a pond because, um, yeah, it was just too big of a risk.
0: There's a real lack of knowledge about, you know, how the invasion started um, and and even what its status is. Is that is that common with, with aquatic invasive species? Is it hard to
2: know? Yeah, it's hard to know a lot of things. Um, yeah. It's hard to know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's hard to know how things got here in the first place, uh, especially in these instances of like organisms in trade invasions. Like, we don't right. know if it was a pet crayfish or a you know uh, crayfish or crawfish boil. <laughs> you know, we're not quite sure. Um, so that's why you know, just prevention is one of the best things we can do. So we don't have to worry so much about. Um, how things got in there, we can really just stop the behavior. So then that way, uh, we're not trying to have to figure these things out. Yeah. A lot of times there's a lag time before something is detected. Uh, It could be introduced. It could hang out at really low numbers until some environmental condition uh, really allows the population to explode or, you know, It could just take that long for it to, you know, get so big that somebody could notice it anyway. Um, There's a paper that just came out about sleeper cells (laughs) that I haven't had a chance. It's like in my uh, my browser window with like 50 other tabs of papers to read. Um, So someday (laughs) I'll read it.
0: My browser window is just filled with tabs of your tweets to click yeah. on, Tim, so that's, <laughs> yours is probably better off than mine is. That's interesting. And so sleeper cells, that may be an aggressive uh, 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 metaphor, but it's kind of right. And we don't know – I guess we don't even know what's out there, right, in terms of other potential invasions just waiting to reach some tipping point. Oh, yep. uh, that's frightening.
6: That's another big theme that Bonnie and I have encountered during this is that like sometimes something – like when it's in low numbers like that, I don't know, Tim, do you even – can you call it invasive if it's like a population that's just like so undetectable? (laughs) I don't know. But then like the environmental conditions shift around it and that can produce like a new context in which that species does become like very problematic for other species or humans who use that, that resource. And so, yeah, it's like the species, but also you have to consider the context and that can be just as important.
0: this podcast you got eight episodes and and um, you know in it we like I like I mentioned you took a really wide view of uh, uh, aquatic invasive species or invasive species in Wisconsin right things like goldfish uh, you plants in fact I forgot to mention that you're hardened criminals who have purchased illegal plants um, are there like large uh, sort of themes what what big themes can you say uh, ran throughout season one I suppose have introduced uh, Bonnie do you want to start us there
5: I think for me, I kind of realized this, that there is this sense of urgency around a lot of these species. Um, A lot of our stories are about, you know, with the red swamp crayfish in Germantown, just like one person can make a really big deal and then, um, you know, introduce a species and then you have to spend a million dollars to get rid of it, you know? So telling a lot of stories like that, that will kind of tell people, um, like don't move invasive species, you know, like crayfish, carp, mussels, they're all like a big, a big deal. And then I think, um, another theme is just realizing that what I said before about one person's trash species is another person's treasure species. And we've talked to people, um, more upcoming in season two, but, you know, groups like Native American groups, they believe that all beings deserve respect and, um, um, some groups aren't even using the term invasive species at all. And, you know, some of the ways that we talk about species, um, they're not always respectful to those beings. You know, it's not it's not their fault that they're here. So, um, yeah, it's about humans.
0: So season two is coming up. What can we look forward to in season two? It sounds like you're going to continue to talk about the values of species. What else? What else might we expect?
5: Well, we continue on with some of the some of the species that we looked at before, like um, we did a few episodes on Asian carp, and in season two, um, Sydney goes carp hunting on the on the Illinois River with um, a captain who does aerial carp bow fishing, where you like yes. spear the carp while they're jumping. Um, so trips like that, we talk about salmon and smelt in Lake Superior, um, and then yeah, more existential you know, topics of what it means to belong and what it, what it means for species to be native and invasive.
0: <sighs> that's excellent. Well, this is really interesting to hear. And, and I, again, I recommend that everybody go and check out Introduce Season 1 so you can catch up before Season 2 drops. Uh, but that's actually not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. The reason that we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes has two questions. And the first one is this. If you could choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose?
6: Sandwich.
0: Sandwich. Got to go. Sandwich says Sydney. And and, and so if I'm in uh, uh, Madison, which I think is where you are, Sydney, where should I go to get a great sandwich?
6: Um, I'm changing my answer. Donut. <laughs> oh, <laughs> two choices. Okay. Donut, specifically a blueberry old fashioned from Greenbush Bakery.
0: Blueberry. Look at that. Shortened to the point. Wrong at first, <laughs> but uh, blueberry old fashioned. The second best old-fashioned that you can have. From Greenbush Bakery, is that right? All right. Well, when I am visiting... <laughs> Taking
5: extensive notes. Yes. Um, I would agree. I'd say donut. I haven't tried oh. that flavor, though. Um, oh, okay. But,
0: but is a Greenbush the place to go, or do you have a different...
5: I, I think all donuts made all donuts. anywhere are good.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't help me travel, is the thing. So I'm going to Greenbush, and I... So what I have to do is get a Blueberry Old Fashioned and then all the rest of the donuts, uh, which is the, the Bonnie special, apparently. Get all donuts. Okay, great. And uh, Tim, do you, you want to chip in, man? Or, or if not, a little behind the scenes, people. Tim's going to be back in a couple weeks, so he can wait. It's up to you.
2: I'll give you more information. I'll have uh, time to think about a sandwich uh, to okay. tell you about. But um, I would uh, double down on the Greenbush donuts. They've pretty much ruined donuts for me everywhere else. So
6: Tim, what's your go-to?
2: Um, I just, the original, the sour cream one. I haven't expanded much, but it's, they don't get any better.
0: Uh, great. And the second question is, is this, so, uh, and we'll focus on Bonnie and Sydney for this one, but you're both, your podcast hosts, podcast producers, you're a, uh, Bonnie, you're a, a video producer generally, or a multimedia content, uh, producer. What is it that makes you good at your job? What makes a good podcast or video producer? And what, what skills do you think you have that you bring to it?
5: I think, um, just sense of story and storytelling is a really important thing. Um, I think with, with this podcast, it's a challenge to like interview a few people and, um, and then try to piece it all together into like a story that is 45 minutes long. It's almost like a little documentary, um, with just one podcast episode. So I think like, yes, storytelling, just knowing how to make things interesting for people, like knowing how to make science into an interesting story that'll keep them, you know, interested.
6: One thing Bonnie and I were noticing, we've gotten a lot better at starting as both like somewhat introverted people. And this really like, um, John, that makes you talk to people. (laughs) Um, we've gotten a lot more fearless about asking people really weird questions and sometimes it's like oh i went too far that was really bizarre <laughs> but, okay um, now
0: hold on hold on hold on hold on <laughs> let's let's hear your uh, an example of a weird question you you've asked um, i
6: was just listening back through an interview that we done a little bit ago and i remember like feeling very awkward for having asked someone this question but he gave like an incredible answer so that worked out well He was, um, I asked him to imagine that he was a Daphnia and what about being a Daphnia would, or what about like encountering a spiny water flea would be the scariest part about being a Daphnia. And then he gave this like incredibly gruesome and violent description of how spiny water flea just absolutely dismember daphnia in the water. Daphnia, if you're not familiar, they're like tiny little transparent organisms that float around and eat algae. And then spiny water flea are only a tiny bit larger than them, but they have this long spine. And apparently they just like shred these sweet little daphnia. I'm really personifying them here, but um, yeah, I would never have known.
0: (laughs) That is a weird question, um, yeah, but I like it, and, and it's interesting that then you get the, uh, the best answers out of that sometimes. So a uh, good lesson there is, is ask people weird questions. But y'all are fearless, you talk about your you introverted or whatever, you're like calling dudes 10 years later randomly, you're asking people if they're, you know, what is it like to be a Daphnia? Stuart, uh, so, what do you think uh,
6: makes a podcast host a better podcast host?
0: A really good team, because that's what I have. Uh, And so um, that to me, yes, is uh, the stable of co-hosts we have. And so our goal with Teach Me About the Great Lakes is to have every episode, like it's, you know, uh, to have every episode episode be as little work as possible, because we all got too much to do. And, um and, and so the way that we do that is by having really smart, interested people working with us. And so we have all these different topics. And we know we're going to come in on this topic who's interested, and they'll, you know, it, it spreads the workout and things like that. So so extreme laziness uh, uh is what works best for me. For me, what it really <laughs> is, is my reason for doing this is I just want to hang out with my work friends and learn about stuff that we're all interested in. Um, and therefore make my job easier, like not my podcast job, but my actual administration job. And uh, so when this works, which it does sometimes and does in others, it's it's when you can sort of sense that, that we're just having a good time and learning stuff together, and that it's it's serious, but it's not too serious. And, uh, uh, you know, that's what we go for.
2: Can I plus good one question. the good team? Because, yeah. like, when I think about... <laughs> It was like, oh, it'd be cool to have an AIS podcast and then I'm sure like you've tried to design something in like Word or whatever to like make yeah. a poster and it looks awful and then your designer does it in like 10 minutes and it's amazing. I feel like that's what Bonnie and City did with the podcast. Like I had this idea of what I could do and then if I tried it, it'd be terrible. And Bonnie and City made it amazing. <laughs> like, yeah, that's great. Yeah,
0: nope, that's exactly true. Yeah, and, and yeah, the work i have done is uh, – I you know, I, 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 it's amazing. It really is. I mean, it's a professional level deal. Um, uh, I mean, you're professionals, I'm not trying to say you're not, but, but you know, it's like you have all these other things you're doing as well. And, and so it's, it's just tremendous. It's just tremendous. And Tim teaches us everything we know and keeps us honest. <laughs> yeah, that is good. That is good. Uh, great. Well, introduce season two. Uh, when is, well, you haven't had, do you have a release date in mind yet? When is this going to come out? Yeah,
5: um, we are going to start releasing Season 2 on March 10th, and then we'll release an episode every Wednesday.
0: Every Wednesday.
6: And March 10th coincides with Wisconsin Water Week, and I don't think it's too late to register for that if you happen to no, be interested. Be.
0: Yeah, so how do we register? That's right. This, if everything comes out right, should be or should be March 1st. I guess today is March 1st. So uh, how do you register for Wisconsin Water Week?
5: Um, so it's a conference for... People in Wisconsin who are interested in water, um, if you don't mind if I'll try to find the website. No, go for it. Um,
6: While Bonnie's looking it up, I wanted to mention that Bonnie and I really want to hear from everyone who might be listening right now and has a story to share about their experiences with places that have changed because of an invasive species or um, an invasive species I think we should be talking about more, maybe something that's overhyped or a set of relationships that they think is really interesting. If anyone has anything.
0: How um, should they how should they get in touch with you?
6: Get in touch with us. You can email
5: bonnie at aqua.wisc.edu. Um, you can find Introduced and you should subscribe wherever you get your podcasts on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on the Wisconsin Sea Grant website. Yeah. Um, we are presenting at Wisconsin Water Week about behind the scenes of Introduced. Um, what do you think is the best website to send them to Tim. WisconsinLakes.org?
2: Yep, that's going to be the easiest.
0: Go to WisconsinLakes.org. And it's only $20
2: a day. Tons of great content for $20 a day.
0: Man, you could spend that on donuts. So this is easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Uh, great. And then everybody should follow you all on, on social media. So uh, let's hear your social media deals and we'll link to them as well.
5: Yeah. So um, you can find me on Twitter at Bonnie Willison, And you can also follow Wisconsin Sea Grant on social media. And then since I'm also a video a video producer, go to YouTube and look up um, Wisconsin Sea Grant to see
6: videos. And you can find me on Twitter at Sydney, Oh, sorry, no, Sid, Wydell, W-I-D-E-L-L. That's the handle.
0: That's great. Uh, and uh, Tim, you're at T underscore Campy, right? Correct. Yeah. And again, we'll hear more from Tim in a couple weeks. But for now, uh, the cast and crew of Introduced, thanks for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Thanks Thanks for for having us. Thanks, Thanks, Stuart. Uh, so that was a great conversation. I enjoyed talking to the folks with introduced and and again, i'm just blown away by the work they do to you know actually be professional and produce their podcasts uh, it's It's a different sort of model. I think, like I said in there, I think of them as like the uh the the kind of produced show model whereas ours is more of a talk radio model um but uh, anyway, so what uh Carolyn we've talked with a lot of people about invasive crayfish today and invasive species generally. What's something you learned about the great lakes so I think um one of the things. Um,
1: that I didn't learn, but I want to say again is the you're gonna the crayfish win by the size of their claws. That's you know like so it's like you know you can feasibly see where they keep coming in, and then if they are actually food for other organisms, then that can totally screw things up. If all of a sudden your food is biting back a lot more than it was before, um, I think another thing that strikes me, you know, whenever you're talking because we're focused on the Great Lakes, we're focused on the invasions here. But I think Brian Roth brought up, you know, that crayfish from North America have gone to Europe and introduced a plague. So I think um, a literal plague. (laughs) Yeah, a literal plague. And so um, I think that, you know, it's important to remember that. Like our stuff can go other places and cause problems too, so
0: it truly is a, a global issue yep. um, to think about. No, that is a good point. And uh, for me, the number one thing I learned is that uh, Vero crayfish—not just a clever name. Uh, so, where can people go to find <laughs> out? Where can people find out more about what we do at Illinois Indiana Sea Grant?
1: Um, they can go to i i s e a g r a n t dot org, or they can find us on social media at
0: i l i n c grant. Great, and I encourage um, you to. Instagram. Yep, I, great, and I encourage you to follow the show on Twitter. We are uh, what do we teach Great Lakes, and send us an email or a feedback um, uh, at teach at gmail.com. I did want to also say that there's a lot of good uh, invasive species specific
1: content generated by Greg and our uh, and the other team. Um, and there's a lot of good collaboration across the Great Lakes Sea Grant Network. So, Um, if you follow us on social media or any of them on social media, you'll learn good
0: stuff. Yeah, you really will. Our our AIS work is top-notch, as it is throughout the region, because it's such a significant issue. Um, And that's one reason we're spending so much time on it. In fact, we're going to have more AIS content coming up in just a a couple of weeks, I think. Or a couple of episodes, anyway. Um, But until then, please give us a rate. Give us a five-star rating. Tell a friend. If you have a friend, tell a friend about us. Um, Write a good review. Don't write a bad review. The the world has enough hate in it. If you don't want to write a good review, just hit pause. Go listen introduced or some other podcast that's fine um but in between now and their next episode uh keep grating those legs folks keep grating those legs and somewhere is the thing i have too many sounds now i can't even there it is
1: realistically we want you to say that it needs more xylophone